Well, this is the Sunday school lesson that uh, we're going to use at Graceway, of course. And it's um, for October the 25th. And uh, thank you, teachers, for taking the time to listen to this. I hope it helps you study and to know what we're thinking and so we can be unified in uh, what we teach. And uh, we also video it. So those of you who weren't able to be in Sunday school or if you're out of town or sick or something like that, you can actually keep up with what your Sunday school class is doing. And that way we can be unified as a church. So I appreciate um, Isaac so much helping me to do this and the time that he puts in on all of this. And it's a, a blessing to the body of Christ. And that's actually what we want to do. Now we're looking in John chapter 17. And this is the actual Lord's Prayer. I don't mean to be confusing with all of that. I just want to get us uh, thinking right about things that the prayer that's typically called the Lord's Prayer was just a, a model for the disciples to use. And of course we use it and we gain great insight and riches on how we are to pray. And uh, the, the command to pray is really much more significant than we actually realize. In fact, the Bible says pray without ceasing. I don't know about you. I haven't gotten that one down yet. And so I need all the help I can get, and I need to learn, and I need to grow um, in that area and get better at it, and all of us do. And uh, this is part of the falling short of the glory of God. That's our failure to pray is just one of those things. And so Jesus, as this prayer in John 17 is recorded, this actually is the Lord's Prayer. And uh, it's written down for us. It's the longest prayer in the Bible. And it's also very significant, Jesus praying for himself, Jesus praying for his disciples, and Jesus praying for those of us who would believe through their word and their witness. You see, it's not going to be very long before Jesus dies on the cross. He's going to be arrested shortly after he prays this prayer. Then he's going to be tried, and um, then he's going to be convicted and taken to Calvary, and there he's going to die to pay for the sins of those who would believe on Christ. He's going to die, be put into a tomb. Three days later, he is going to be raised from the dead, and 40 days after that, he ascends to the right hand of God the Father. So, what are we, 44 days maybe from Jesus being gone because he's completed his earthly mission here, okay? Now, this is terrifying to the disciples. And if we didn't know the entire story, we might read this and be a little bit terrified too. You're going to leave everything in the hands of Peter? You're going to leave everything in the hands of cowards who are going to desert their Savior? And uh, not saying that I wouldn't have done the exact same thing that they did, but uh, then again, I wouldn't actually see myself as capable and qualified to leave the mission of the gospel in my hands either, right? You probably feel the same way. And so we look at that and go, what is he thinking? And what in the world is he doing? And yet here we are in the year 2020 talking about these very things and very issues that the apostles taught us in Acts 2. 42, the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Well, guess what? That's what we do today. 
That's why we have times like this. This is why we teach the Word of God. That's what we're to do. Continue, not casually, not haphazardly, but steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Mission accomplished, apostles. And that's an amazing thing. It shows the hand of God, the sovereignty of God, and the power of God that Jesus could die the way that he died in the place and under the circumstances that he died. That usually does not lend itself to a worldwide movement that lasts over 2,000 years. That has to be the power of God. And then to leave the gospel and to leave the, uh, the fate of the church, so to speak, from a human standpoint, in the hands of these nobodies, and in some cases, let's just say losers, and then we're still talking about it in the year 2020, that has to be the power of God. And I'll go a little bit further and say this, it's the answer to Jesus' prayer. Jesus gets his prayers answered. Jesus always knows how to pray. He always knows what the will of God is. And that's still true today. And he's still praying for us. And his prayers get answered. Now, when we think about the uh, prayer here in John 17, uh, think about Jesus has spoken about his glory. His glory for himself restored when he goes back to heaven. And also his glory being on display through us, those who follow him. How, how are you doing on that? Are you displaying and showing the glory of God in everything, uh, everything that you do, not just in church, not just at the quote-unquote appropriate times, but in everything, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what Jesus has prayed for. But there's another theme that seems to be in the uh, prayer here that we forget about. And Jesus talks about the world hating us. I don't like that particularly. I want people to like me. I want people to like us. I want us to get along with people and be good neighbors and minister and serve and bless other people. And I would like to think that people, when they think of Graceway Baptist Church in this community, that they smile and they remember us passing out food during uh, the aftermath of tornadoes like to think that they smile and think about the times when we have uh, fed hungry people at Mission 405 and helped homeless people to make it through another couple of weeks. I would like to think that they see our good works and they glorify our Father in heaven and uh, we have something that we can agree on them with. Yes, it's all for the glory of God. Isn't it great that he chooses to use us in ways that bless and help other people? But the truth of the matter is, we live in a very divided country, and to a large degree, the division in the United States of America really does come down to what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what's of God and what's not of God. Boy, you go into some circles and mention that you are a Christian and you believe in Jesus, you're going to raise some eyebrows, and you're going to attract some attention. And just in case you dispute that and you think that you can do that and get away with it or you do it and you say it wasn't that bad, let me just encourage you to go a step further and say, I not only believe in Jesus, ready for this? 
But Jesus is the only way of salvation. You will attract a lot of heat in today's culture by proclaiming that. And so the world hates us because they hate our God. And they hate his message and they hate his plan. They hate everything about him, whether they realize it or not. And so, therefore, they also will hate us. It's uh, more than just a little disagreement or anything, isn't it? It's really, really um, rough. It'll bring persecution. And um, look around at some of the countries in the world that have actually suffered the loss of life and the loss of uh, freedom and family and those kind of things over that one thing. Is Jesus Lord? Is Jesus the only way? In the book of Acts, that really was the issue for the early church. So we don't want to fumble the ball. We don't want to drop the baton that's been passed off unto us. And we need to have a reality check here that our life really is about God's glory. And I wish that were easy, but it's not because the world hates us. So let's um, go to our scripture verses today and let's go down to verse 11, 17, John 17, 11. Jesus says, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one. That's the unity of true believers, as we are. That's the standard, isn't it? Verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition. That would be Judas. And literally that means the child of hell. Okay? And why uh, was he lost and the others kept? Jesus tells us that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus cares about the fulfillment of Scripture more than we do, doesn't he? Verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, us, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus wants you to be joyful. Verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. That would be Satan. Verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify or set them apart. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. How important is it that we proclaim Scripture, teach Scripture, learn Scripture, live Scripture, and pass on Scripture? Well, you got it in verse 17. Your word is truth. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify or set myself apart that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Boy, you could uh, probably spend about a year on just those verses, couldn't you? There's a lot in there. We're not going to do that. 
But there's a lot in there. Understand that and maybe do some study for yourself. Jesus talks about some things here that if we're not careful, we're going to get caught way off guard. We're going to be tricked and we're going to be trapped. If we think somehow we can win the world over to seeing things our way, where in the Bible does it ever say that we're going to win the world? In fact, Jesus said, there's a narrow gate, few there be that find the way. And yet we're so busy trying to think that, uh, or trying to win the world that we forget about the opposition we're going to face. I used to go to some of these evangelism conferences and some of the preachers in there really didn't have good theology. It wasn't sound. They were off on it. Not in major ways. They weren't heretics or anything. But they were off in some of them. And they would tell stories. And they were usually pastors that uh, had big, high-powered churches baptizing hundreds, if not thousands, in a year. And they would bring them in and they would preach. And they would you know, try to rally the troops so that we could all go out and do the same thing. And um, I remember one guy that he was up there preaching. He said, I was out jogging. He lost me there. But uh, he said that when he was jogging, he would go every day past this one particular house. And every morning there was a man sitting out on the porch. And they'd wave at each other and say, how you doing? That kind of thing while uh, he was j this pastor was jogging. And one day the pastor said, I felt an impression of the Lord to go up and speak to the guy. I went up and spoke to the guy and the guy says, why hadn't anybody ever told me this before? This is what I've been looking for. And he prayed to receive Christ and was gloriously saved. That's a great story. Wish I had more of them. I bet you wish you had more stories like that as well. And I don't doubt that there are times when that happens because I believe in the sovereignty of God. And I believe God does do things like that to bring in his elect. But I also believe in the depravity, the total depravity of human beings. I believe in Romans chapter 3 that no one seeks after God, no one understands, and they've altogether become unprofitable. I believe in John 17, the world hated Jesus and the world hates those in whom Jesus dwells, those who are followers of Jesus. And so that gives me a problem because all of those thousand or so pastors that were at that conference Probably all of us left going, yeah, I'm going to do that. Maybe even some of them decided to start jogging so they could do that. Have you ever tried what that pastor did? Now, you may have done it in the grocery store. You may have done it with a neighbor. You may have done that with a family member. And you just felt an overwhelming burden and an impression to talk about Jesus. And you did that. How did it go? Because I'm going to make the um, assumption that probably... Probably, let's say seven or eight times out of ten that you would do that if you've even done it ten times. Most Christians don't share their faith, sadly, or so-called Christians. But if you do that, probably at least seven or eight times out of ten, you didn't get a favorable response. And that leads you to go, well, I guess God just hadn't anointed me like he anointed that high-powered pastor. Boy, I bet if I was like him, I bet if I had his prayer life, I bet if I would fast like he does, I bet if I had his devotion to the Word and all of that, boy, I would probably have more of those stories to tell as well. Maybe. Maybe not. Because what they fail to factor in is that the only reason anybody has any interest in the truth of the Word of God is because of the work and the preparation and the drawing 
of the Holy Spirit, right? And if you're at the right place at the right time and the Spirit of God puts you together with somebody that he is working in, then it's, wow. I mean, that's lightning striking. That's powerful. And those kind of things are really, really, really awesome. Sometimes you preach like Peter did and 3,000 get saved. But not every time he preached did 3,000 get saved. In fact, Peter was a martyr for his faith. Paul had situations where he would go into a town and he would uh, preach the gospel and a church is established. He had other times when he preached the gospel and uh, maybe a church wasn't established or maybe it wasn't established until after he was run out of town like in Philippi. We just don't know how that's going to happen. Sometimes Paul would preach, establish a church, and then the church would turn against him and uh, he'd have to write a whole book of the Bible defending his apostleship and defending his gospel that he preached to them. Second Corinthians, the Corinthian church turned on the apostle Paul. And I think sometimes we look at just the highlight reels, the success stories, and we don't understand that the reality of our life is that we are not of this world. Jesus says that twice. We're not of this world. He also said that the world hates us. And we don't want the world hating us. It should not be our goal to make the world hate us. We should not be jerks. We should not be rude. We should not be obnoxious. We should not set out to try to rub them the wrong way or anything. Far from it. It ought to be that if there's any hatred that the world has for us or for our church, it's because we are so much like Jesus that they can't stand it. And it ought to be that we are just being like him. The Bible says Jesus went about doing good. How much good are you doing? And is that what is causing you your trouble? Or are you just rude and unkind and unfeeling and just abrasive? Do you wear your Christianity uh, like boxing gloves and you're going around and punching people in the nose and then just saying, well, their depravity caused them to uh, hate me. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's you. Maybe you need some sanctification through the word, which is truth, so that you can be more like Jesus. And uh, the, the fact that you are hated is not something that happens uh, because of anything that you do or don't do. It happens because of the work of the Spirit of God in you that causes a reaction from the spirit of the enemy in them. Read Ephesians chapter 2. We once were like everybody in the world. We were dead to God and dead to spiritual truth. And Paul goes on to say that we were once indwelt by the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Let's just say technically everybody who's lost is demon-possessed. Um, they may not be foaming at the mouth or worshiping Satan or anything like that, but they're controlled by the spirit of this world, and uh, we need to understand that. So we are on a war footing, a battle footing that we need to be ready for, and boy, we can get ambushed at certain times. You can be doing something that seems to be perfectly acceptable, talking about something that even they might have some interest in, and say that one thing that causes them to uh, come out and to attack. And uh, that's what Jesus faced. That's what the apostles faced. And we are in this world, but we're not of the world. Is that making sense? 
So let's think about Jesus prayed for us in this prayer along these um, lines, I guess we would say. And what is he saying here? Uh, Christian, be ready because here's point number one. We are on the front lines. You can't go hide and you can't be back out of the... You're, you're in the battle anywhere and everywhere you go. Warfare is not just a little prayer you pray in the morning. Uh, that can get kind of superstitious sometimes, almost like an abracadabra, now I'm saved. Not true. You are fighting the war with every breath you breathe, with every beat of your heart you're doing warfare. Every step that you take, everywhere you go, you're on enemy territory and you're about to get ambushed and you are certainly being opposed the armor of the believer all of it has to be put on paul says put on the whole armor of god any minute you need every piece and as you walk through this world you've got to be ready because you don't know when the enemy is going to attack and jesus said this is particularly true because he's no longer in the world but we are he's no longer in this world physically but we are and if the enemy can't get to Jesus any longer, who do they go after? Those who look the most like him, right? And that's what he's praying about here. And he's praying that we would be kept in his name, that name above all names. And we would be kept because we have been given to Christ as love gifts. And he also is praying that we would be one. Isn't it sad that there are so many brands, I guess we would say, of Christianity? And uh, there are so many brands because some are right and some are wrong. And sometimes we find that Christians, even those who are right, have trouble getting along. The enemy attacks us on this thing of unity because it's when we are in unity that uh, we really are able to function in the power of the Holy Spirit and according to the Word. It's so important. You ought to pray about the unity of your family. You ought to pray about your unity with other believers, that you would be wise and discerning and not get linked up and be unequally yoked with people who believe in a heretical doctrine because there are a lot of them out there. And we also ought to understand that the enemy will divide us over anything the temperature in the auditorium, the color of carpet, anything that he can. And it's amazing what churches will divide over. Secondly, he talks about the fact that there are false brethren. While I was, verse 12, with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled you see even among jesus disciples there was a fake there was a pseudo apostle a pseudo christian that was in there and i think jesus includes that in there because we need to understand that in this world that we live in there are some people who fake their christianity there are people who would pretend to be something that they are not in the book of Jude, it tells us that as believers, we are to contend earnestly for the faith. Why do we do that? Because there are some who pretend earnestly that they are in the faith. And they are not well-meaning people who just wandered in and they thought they were saved and they're really not. That's not the case. These are people who are actually faking it for the destruction of the word, for the destruction of truth, for the destruction of the church, for the destruction of the mission 
that God has given us. God has called us to love him supremely and then also to love other people as we love ourselves and to carry out the great commission in that spirit. Well, these pseudo-believers, uh, these pseudo-brothers, they are going to try to disrupt that because it's not in their nature and they want to do everything but what God says and they will do everything they can to derail us and derail the church and hurt the cause of Christ. Thirdly, we need to be on guard here because the world desires to sabotage us. You know, sabotage. If you think about some of the war movies and television shows you've seen, and if somebody was going to sabotage, they don't walk up to the commanding general on the post and say, hello, my name is Greg and I'm here to sabotage everything. I'm here to blow up your airplanes. I'm here to sink your ships. You don't do that. Sabotage is always sneaky. It's subversive. And that's the way the world works against us. They pretend to be our friends, but they're really not. They'll use us for political purposes or, you know, um, whatever. And in that, they are really punching holes in the, in the boat. And we don't always notice it. And so uh, Jesus speaks about this. And he talks about... Um, us having his joy in themselves, verse 13. Also in verse 14, he gives us his word, and that's what causes the world to hate us because it goes against the grain. <clears throat> he talks in verse 15 that his prayer is for us not to be isolated or taken out of the world, but to actually be in the world rubbing shoulders with them so that they can see truth lived in our lives and hear truth from our lips and it better be the same way your life and your lips need to match one without the other is a problem and so they try to steal our joy they try to intimidate us by hating us and making us feel alone they want to replace Christ with something else and they uh, want to make us disobedient fruitless and insignificant in this world and they seem to be getting their job done better than we are getting our job, right? And so that's why Jesus prays for us. We have to trust the Lord that uh, we can not be sabotaged by uh, the world, but we can be walking and marching and sailing and whatever metaphor you want to use for the glory of God, pressing on to the mark of the high calling. And lastly, well, we walk contrary to the world. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So he says, set them apart by your truth. Have you ever been at a football game? And uh, maybe uh, you had to go uh, at a different gate than everybody in your section was going out of because of where you parked. And you're having to walk upstream. You know what? It's, uh, it slows you down. It slows you down. And it's kind of hard, and you have to weave and go back and forth. Sometimes you can kind of lose your bearings, and you think you're heading north, but you're actually heading a little bit northeast, and you end up somewhere where you didn't intend to be, and you get off track because you can't really walk a straight path in that. Have you ever had anybody get annoyed with you? Sometimes you might get an elbow. Sometimes you might have somebody that kind of refuses to move or refuses to clear the way or let you through, and there's always opposition. See, when Jesus said we're on the narrow road, he is basically saying here's a broad road that leads to destruction and everybody is on it. And then he has, by his grace, 
taken you and turned you around and you're walking upstream. You're walking against the flow. You're walking against the crowd. That's the narrow road. And so as we oppose them, every time we take a step in the direction of truth, every time we take a step in the direction of morality, every time we vote according to uh, our conscience that's um, informed by the word of God, every time we speak up for something that is right or speak against something that is wrong, I mean, let's try this. Not only tell people, friends and neighbors and others that Jesus is the only way, and then add this, and because of that, gay marriage is illegitimate according to God. I mean, it doesn't take much in this culture to stir things up. This tolerant world that we live in becomes very quickly intolerant and heated in what they think if you don't agree with them. And we've got to make sure that we're not like them, of course, and understand we're walking the wrong way in this world. We are countercultural. We are holding up a different standard. We're walking upstream. And that's difficult sometimes. It takes more energy, more effort in order to do that. But the good news is, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. It also means people are not going to smile and applaud when you start going against the flow. They take it personal. Why are you going that way? Why aren't you walking with us? What are you trying to really say? And it's not enough for us to just have our own beliefs. Because most of the time the world looks at us and if we say, well, this is what we believe because we're Christ followers and we follow the word of God. The world is not content to say, okay, well, good for you. Believe what you want to believe. We'll believe what we want to believe and we'll all just, you know, be hunky-dory in all of this. No, they take it as a rebuke. If you don't agree with them, you are rebuking them. And people don't like to be rebuked. I don't and you don't. And the world doesn't like it either. And yet that's what we're called to do. And we do this, of course, in the power of the Spirit, according to the Word of God. We do it out of love, and we do it because we want to glorify God. And so Jesus is still set apart. He's not like everyone else. And he says in verse 19 that I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified or set apart. And what sets us apart? Again, not that we're jerks, not that we're rude, not that we're condemning, not that we're mean. It's truth. And if you follow the word of God, you will be set apart and you will be different. And this is the way we are walking. And this is all the supernatural work of God because we're born from above and we're pleasing to God through this sanctification, even though we're not pleasing to the world. And we walk in the truth, which means that we follow Jesus because he is the way the truth, and the life. And so understand, these make us vulnerable and they make us helpless in life unless God protects us and unless he holds on to us. And in the book of Jude, in verse 1, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that verse a little bit more in some upcoming lessons. But in the meantime, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Don't look for it and don't stir it up, but don't be surprised when it happens. But remember, that's what they did to Jesus and you are being kept by him. Why? Because he prayed for you. 
He knows what you're going through and what you're going to go through. He's with you in all of that. And he's going to take you through it as well for the glory of his name. Thank you for taking time to uh, listen to this or watch it as the case may be. And I hope it's stirred your thought. I hope it's fed your soul. And I hope it causes you to magnify Jesus more than you did before you listened to this. Not because of what I say, but because of what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer for you. Thank you and God bless you this week.